0: Welcome to episode 383 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. With me is Ben Olson. We're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous by sharing news and questions on our website, ThinkingLSAT.com. The show is going to air on Monday, Monday, January 2nd. First thing we have here is a, uh, let's see, it's an email from Abe.
1: Okay. The subject line is three plus three programs and their practicality. Okay. I don't know what that means. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I am a second year undergraduate student with the anticipated plan of attending law school through the three plus three program offered by my university. I recently fell in love with the show because of the incredible advice you give to prospective law students, which has brought about questions of my own. I'd love for you to discuss on a future episode, exclamation point. First, what are your thoughts on three plus three programs? I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is?
0: So, yeah, three-year undergrad and a three-year JD at the same
1: school. Oh, okay. Interesting. To someone who is certain that they want to go to law school, it seems like a no-brainer. However, do you think there is a benefit to completing a four-year undergrad degree? In my case, a minimum LSAT of 156, median of the incoming JD class, is required by December 2023. I diagnosed at 147 and I hope to see a 156 practice test by the end of January so I can spend February and April aiming for consistency, perhaps even 160, so I can test confidently in June and have the rest of the summer to improve if needed. Do you believe this goal is reaching and can the LSAT pressure for a 3 plus 3 students be detrimental? Um, My gut reaction is this is not this is not great. This is a way to pull you away from better opportunities. Yeah, but
0: 100 percent agree with you, Ben. This is the, these programs are much better for the schools than they are for the students, because if they get you roped into this three plus three program in your freshman year of college, then it's like you're just going to be paying them for six years worth of education. And the truth about law school, and I don't know what school we're talking about here, but if you look at their 509 reports, probably this school gives, I mean, almost all law schools give significant scholarships up to and including full rides. If you sign up for this, and you know, it's just such it's such bullshit. It's such garbage that they're like, well, you have to get our median LSAT. And then they don't want you to get any higher than that. Because if you get any higher than that, it doesn't really help their median, right? You're already at or above their median, so it's fine. If you're 10 points above their median, that doesn't do them any good. And it means that you would easily be able to get in and get scholarships at other better schools. So I just, I think this is a scam. I think that they are, I mean, they don't probably think of it as a scam. I don't mean that they are intentionally scamming you. But it's bad for you as an applicant because you're never going to get to test your value in the market. I mean, what this is, it's like you're a um, it's like you're a minor league baseball player or something. And they're going to they're going to say, like, well, if you stay with us for three years here and then then we'll put you into the pros for three years. But the the trick is that they're going to pay you like the minimum possible salary or in law school context, you're actually going to be paying them like the maximum possible and the reality is if, if you get, if you get their median, they're probably going to give you a scholarship to go to their school, if you don't apply through this three by three program, three plus three program. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, I don't know what, maybe different schools might have different policies. If you go ask them about that, they're going to probably lie to you. Oh no, no. We, we always consider everybody for full what, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, The program is designed to get you to settle for a mediocre LSAT. Yeah. So that you'll go to their mediocre, probably law school. Yep. I mean, I've never heard of a three plus three at Harvard, Stanford, Yale, right? (laughs) Because they don't need to rope you into their dumb law school. Yeah. I think this is a real bad idea. It sounds like you're about to sell yourself short. Diagnostic 147, you should end up easily in the 160s, like comfortably in the 160s and very likely 170s if you really give it your best shot. Apply early, apply broadly with a 165 or a 170, and you're going to blow this school out of the water. Like it's They're not doing you a favor.
1: You're going to go to a better school and you're going to go for free.
0: Yeah. It, it the, As far as the four-year undergraduate degree, I don't know if there's a benefit to that if you really are like You know, I'm taking you at your word. If you're rock solid set on law school, for sure. We could argue about that, but I'm not going to. I'm going to I'm going to let you be committed to that. And I still think that this program is terrible for you.
1: I also don't think you need four years to finish undergrad. I, I finished in three and a half and it was just because of my major. When I finally chose a major, it was like, wait a sec these are the classes that are required to graduate. I can do this in three and a half years. If I had known that sooner, I probably could have done it in three years. There's no requirement that you have to stay there for four years. The only requirement is that you have to finish certain classes. Now, maybe that's gonna require four years, but if you really wanna finish in three years, you could try. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think there's any benefit
0: to this. Um, write us back and, and tell us go to lsatdemon.com and fill out that form again. And, you know, if you want to ask follow up questions, we're we're more than willing. But I don't see anything good about this program for you. They, they make it look like it's a good program for you. Oh, you'll have certainty about where where you're going to go. And all you need to do is get our median and we'll we'll admit you. But getting admitted to law school sucks. You want to get a scholarship to law school. You don't want to just get admitted. And that's all they're going to do here. They're going to say, oh, you're in our program. So you're not even applying to any other law schools. Right. It's like, oh, you get to save time because you don't even have to apply to any of these other schools. You you don't have to keep prepping for the LSAT to try to get a higher score. Just, you know, all you need is our median of 156. And for this student, like your ceiling is way, way higher than that 156. Yep. So, you know, that's a nine
1: point improvement. That's Nothing. People blast. Yeah, blast blast past that all the time. You have to look at this from the school's perspective. I I think that um, I don't think they're trying to to be nefarious or anything bad, but they're a business and they have you for four years right now. And they're looking at ways to get you for six. They're like, great. Hey, two more years of income from this individual. And they might they might honestly believe that this is a benefit to you, I, I bet they do, but it's also a benefit to them, which is why they have come around to this idea. It's, it's very it's, easy for them to believe that it's a benefit to you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, it's also possible that they know that it's not a benefit to you and that they know <laughs> I mean, because they know the game, right? Like yeah, they know what yeah. happens. They've probably seen their own undergrads go on to better law schools than their shitty yep. law school. And so they're saying,
1: how do we keep them? How do we keep them in the fold? Well, get them to make a decision now, not later when they have options.
0: Yeah. I mean, I could even see the pre-law, like, who knows? I I don't want it. It it just, it just seems, you know, we've got the law school and we've got the undergrad school and we've got the undergrad pre-law counseling probably, but I can Mm -hmm. see the law schools come into the undergrad pre-law counselors and just like, you know, I'm not saying, Cut a deal, but like, you know, hey, it'd be really good for our law school if we could just, you know, direct people into this three plus three program. Isn't this great? And the truth is, your pre law counselor knows way less about law school admissions than we do anyway. Like, we hear, we constantly hear terrible advice coming out of undergrad pre law advising. Like, these people are just not, they probably have eight other things that they also advise on. And that just means that they're not an expert in any of them. And they don't know how this game is actually played. So, uh, yeah, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they actually think that this is good for you. Um,
1: but but regardless, not. right, their intentions don't matter. At the end <laughs> of the day, it's not good for you. So don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK, next item. Um,
0: Eric submitted this to the show. This is a, a, a story from Reuters Headline says ABA flunks law schools in D.C., Florida and Vermont over bar exam pass rates. Uh, did you hear about this since one of them is in D.C.? University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law.
1: Wow, that's interesting. I mean, there are a lot of law schools around here. So if we lose one, <laughs> uh, it's not a big loss, I think. But I'm curious What do they mean by flunk? They're on probation now or they have to get in line? Oh, I'm sure
0: this headline does not indicate like the truth of the (laughs) there's no way it's like clickbait, right? Um, Yeah. The ABA found three law schools out of compliance with its bar pass rate minimum. The schools say they have seen recent improvements in their pass rates. Yeah, (laughs) of course they have, except for they're below the ABA minimum. Um, it looks like ABA requires 75% of a school's graduates to pass the bar within two years. These schools are going to remain accredited. Oh, by the way, they are Vermont Law, Ave Maria School of Law, and the the DC one. I guess Ave Maria is in Florida. Okay. The schools remain accredited but must provide written reports to the ABA's Council of the Section of Legal Education and Admissions to the bar In February, demonstrating that they are back in compliance based on more recent bar exam results. If those letters prove insufficient, then the schools will appear before the council in May. Nothing's going to happen here. Do you think that anything is going to do you think the ABA is going
1: to do jack shit here? No, because as long as they can even just show a marginal improvement, they're going to cry, you know. Hey, we're improving. Why would you deny us the opportunity to continue educating students if we're making progress towards compliance
0: well you can tell from (laughs) it's like they didn't actually give them a deadline right it's like well you have until february to demonstrate that you're back in compliance on the more recent bar exam results and then if that isn't true then you're gonna have to come back again it's like they're already scheduling a second hearing so we know nothing's happening at the first hearing
1: yeah, where they could have said, hey, if you're not in compliance by February, <laughs> right. we're going to revoke your. Yeah,
0: <laughs> they could have said this is the fucking law. Like the rules are you have to have a 75 percent bar passage rate within two years or else you're not accredited by us.
1: Yeah, but they, could revoke they it don't
0: today. Instead, <laughs> they have this like totally toothless requirement that then, oh, you know, if you like we're going to basically call you in and lecture you multiple times.
1: So this is interesting. There are two. um The main source of this problem is probably, although I don't know, but probably the quality of the applicants that were admitted to these schools, right? Oh, for sure. Yep. And so that is a problem they can't solve overnight, which means they're now going to have to turn to training, right? So they're going to invest more in bar prep within the school.
0: Uh, Or just cut cut, cut them a check, right? Like a, a check for bar prep. Yeah. If I was mm-hmm. the school, I would just outsource it. I'd be like, oh, yep. yeah, we'll pay for you to take Barbary. We got to get Go, back in compliance.
1: It. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> we're going to be out of business. So <laughs> we made a mistake
0: admitting you because you're not a good candidate and you are going to struggle mightily with the bar. <laughs> Ave Maria is ranked 192 in the country. Wow. There's one ranked school that's lower, which is, a uh, well, I guess it's four. Sorry, it's a tie. Uh, all the ones that are at the very bottom are tied. <clears throat> well, Let's just look at Ave Maria's 509. Yeah. Want to take a guess at the 50th percentile
1: LSAT? Ooh, 147. The number yeah. we just read for the diagnostic score? No, 151.
0: <laughs> 151. Okay.
1: Interesting. Yeah. One,
0: 151. But I mean, their 25th percentile is only 148 and their GPAs are terrible. 50th percentile GPA is 3.17. 25th percentile is 2.84. I mean, look, people hate me anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. Ave Maria is admitting people who are bad at school, as documented by their GPAs, Mm -hmm. and also bad at the LSAT, as documented by their LSAT scores. Yep. And if you're going to admit people who are bad at school and bad at the LSAT, then guess what? They're going to have a hard time when you have to when they have to take a bar exam. Yep. So. The only solution, right? The only real fix. It's not like Ave Maria is not doing a good job of of educating its students or whatever. It's that they're doing a bad job of selecting students in the first place. But that's because those are the only people who would ever go to that school.
1: Well, it's it's the kind of school that probably shouldn't exist. And it's interesting that (laughs) isn't that the point of this bar passage requirement? Yet the ABA really isn't using it.
0: No, well, we've known this for years, right? The, the yeah, we we talked about this on previous episodes of the show. You know, the last law school, like, well, one of the big significant law schools to go out of business was Charlotte, right? And mm-hmm. the reason why Charlotte went out of business
1: is because the U.S. Department of Education stopped guaranteeing the loans. Mm. It's like they. what like, was the reason for that? Why did they decide to stop guaranteeing the loans? Because too many loans were not being repaid from that, those. Students? I thought so, yeah. I mean, and it could have been that
0: they weren't passing the bar and weren't becoming attorneys and were never able to repay their loans. But I think the point was, like, look, you guys are miles out of compliance here with, like, you're not turning out actual lawyers. And so we can't guarantee these loans anymore. And that school immediately went out of business as soon as they couldn't get the sweet, sweet federal loan money.
1: Yeah, which is (laughs) just the only way that most people are paying for law school. It's sad. Yeah. Um, wow, the Department of Education, I mean, I remember us talking about that, but they really need to exercise that muscle more, not just in law school, but all over the place. Just take a look at um, repayment rates and say, hey, look, you're not repaying. That's a sign that the, the market has indicated to us in some way, shape, or form that your services aren't valuable, right? They're not producing the outcomes that should generally be produced. Oh, you you shouldn't you can't loan anybody
0: money to go to Ave Maria. I mean, Ave Maria is giving more than full tuition scholarships to 21% of the class. That's the only reason why they have, you know, that 151 median LSAT. Yeah. They're paying them to come. Yeah. Come, please. And without and, and so so those people are going for free, and then you take the rest of the class and they're like, yeah, 140 something LSAT, two point something GPA. And they're paying all the money and the only people who are like passing the bar. I mean, I'm painting with a very broad brush. I realize that there are exceptions. I don't actually mean the only people who are passing the bar, but the majority of the people who are passing the bar are the ones who are like getting those scholarships in the first place. So hmm. it's just a terrible, terrible investment. I, I agree with you, Ben. I, I don't think any of these schools need to exist. We would do just fine with 150 law schools in the country. instead of <laughs> Yeah. Okay, thanks, Eric, for submitting that. You want to read this uh, support question from Nate?
1: Yeah, I foolishly took the August 2022 LSAT, basically cold and bombed it. 143. I recently found out, found LSAT demon and have just started actually studying. I'm already registered for the January LSAT, but I want to do it the right way this time. Would it look bad if I withdrew from the January test? No, no one would even know. As long as you withdraw, it does not show
0: up on your record at all. But even if it did, no one would care. (laughs) (laughs) And even if it did, no one would care. They also (laughs) don't care about your bomb 143. Um, That's that's actually a fine diagnostic. That's a solid diagnostic. From there, I think we can get you into the 160s and it'll be like the whole thing never happened. But yeah, you need to withdraw from the January test. Um, At this point, you're not getting your money back, I don't think. But uh, it's way better than wasting uh, another attempt at the test and putting another bad or mediocre score on your record. Nate, you definitely just need to withdraw. Yep. All right. Abby says, Ben and Nathan said on the podcast that you can take a practice test score by adding your score on three different sections, because that's not much different than doing a full test sitting at once. How can I work out my score from three different sections if they are from different tests oh and have different number of questions and then she asks a couple questions that are not going to be relevant here ben you want to explain what we do when we combine test sections together
1: yeah so if you take three individual sections from test 88 in other words from the same test you can then combine those three sections together by clicking on the three dots to the right of any one of those sections and say, hey, I wanna merge these sections into one test, and then it will move over into your practice test history and become a full test, as if you had done it sitting all at once right? So you have to pull three sections from the same test. And by the way, you need a game section. You need a reading comp section and you need an LR section. You can't do two LR sections and a reading comp section or two LR sections and a game section. So, but if you do that, if you do three individual tests or sections from the same test, then you can merge them together and get a score.
0: Yeah. And if you're not a demon subscriber, if you're just doing practice tests on paper or on law hub or whatever, if you want to do all of the three scored sections from a practice test in three separate sittings, that's totally fine. As long as they're all coming from the same test, you just then calculate your score as normal. We don't have any way of combining different sections from different tests, and I don't see why we would really want to do that.
1: Nope. Um, also if you're not in the demon, you can still use lsatdemon.com forward slash converter to take any of these old tests and put in your section scores and get what you would score on the modern test as opposed to the old scaling system, which gave more weight to logical reasoning.
0: Neat. I don't think I've ever seen that before. LSATDemon.com forward slash converter. Yep. Wow. Oh yeah. So any of the ninety-three Plus practice tests. Yeah. And you can calculate your score. Amazing. Cool. Great job.
1: Yeah. What do we got next? Oh, that was Abby. Thanks, Abby. Yeah, thanks. This is anonymous. The subject is advice. I'm planning on taking the January LSAT as it stands. I'm not super confident that my score will be where I want it to be, at least a 170, meaning I'd have to retake it. The plan well, then is don't to take apply- January. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> I mean, stop don't there. Don't
0: take tests when you're not ready to take tests. If you're not confident that you're going to score what you need to score, then just don't take it. You can keep taking practice tests. There's no reason to take official tests if you're not feeling confident about taking that test. Amen.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, the plan is to apply with the score I have by February. Oof, that's a bad idea too. And see where I get in. Yeah. Don't do that. You're applying late. You're, pl- you're taking a test that you're not ready to take and then you're applying late in the cycle. You're just setting yourself up for poorer results. The issue is, according to Anonymous, I know that my chances are probably better if I wait to apply and retake the LSAT to see if I can get a better score. Well, I'm glad you know that. But you don't know it enough. I'm also graduating a year early, so not sure if that affects my chances at all. It doesn't. My backup plan is that if I don't take my Janu- if I don't like my January score, I'll retake the LSAT, work for a little bit, and apply next October, November. Do you think it's a good idea to still apply in February just to see where I get in and decide from there? No. Nope. It's a bad idea. It's gonna set you up for. Uh, Making bad decisions. You're basically just tempting yourself to take subpar offers and you're wasting your time when your time should be 100% focused on your grades and your LSAT.
0: Yeah. Don't set yourself up to make bad decisions. Yep. Like don't drive yourself to the bar. (laughs) (laughs) You know? it's yeah. like you don't uh, want to get a DUI. i'll just DUI. see what they got i'll just see. <laughs> yeah i mean you you don't want to get a dui okay take an uber there then you don't yeah. have any choice right you drive yeah. yourself to the bar now it's like well you know i only live 15 minutes away and i've only had seven drinks i'm sure i'll, I'll be fine you know i don't want to leave my car here you're just set you're setting yourself yeah. up I'll have to come back tomorrow to get it and it'll be so embarrassing and like, yeah, no, this is a really, really bad plan. By the way, don't apply next October or November. Apply next August or September. I I think you should I I think you should withdraw from January. If you're not confident, you should retake practice tests until you're solidly in the 170s. If you want to take it in February, fine, but you also need to plan on taking it multiple times. I mean, you're only giving yourself one or two shots at it here, which is terrible. Like when you because when you when you get to your last bullet, it's real easy to be stressed. And I mean, you're trying to force it in, right? You're going, oh, I'll take the January test and I don't think I'm really ready. But if I, you know, maybe I'll do maybe I'll do better than I think and then I can apply right away. Well, you're putting so much pressure on that January test. Then you're going to do the same thing on your retake in February. You're going to put way too much pressure on it. And then all that is so that best case, you can put in an application way, way late in the cycle. I mean, people are already admitted.
1: Just to look and see what you would get.
0: Why? We've seen the first round of applications almost everywhere. We've been looking at scholarship offers since literally September. We saw scholarship offers at some schools. And so what what are you doing? Like you're you're lining up to try to pay tuition for those people who already have scholarships. I think this is a terrible idea.
1: Nathan, are you familiar with the um, the outlet issues that people used to have? Right. The outlet prongs were the same size. So sometimes people would put them in backwards. And that's why they made one of them. On one side. Yeah, this was a. So, yeah, originally they had instructions and they were telling people, like, this is how you need to plug it in. Make sure this is facing up or whatever. Okay. And then, and then some, I think it was a Japanese company said, wait a sec, let's make it impossible for them to fail. Sure. It's, you can't make a mistake now. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't get the plug in the wrong way. I feel like not applying is making sure you don't fail yeah yeah i like that yeah you're gonna you're you're
0: you're about to just like i mean you're not even putting an outlet in this you're like sticking a fork
1: in the socket with <laughs> with this plan you know like see let's see what happens i mean i'm curious i haven't seen that before so
0: <laughs> the thing is we have seen it before and it's not pretty yeah. so just uh yeah. yeah go ahead and withdraw from January. Create a more civilized plan for yourself. Don't take the LSAT officially until you're pretty confident that you're going to score in the 170s. And also plan on taking it multiple times. You know, like if half your scores are in the 170s and half of them are in the 160s, that's actually okay, maybe for taking an official test as long as you're planning on retaking it multiple times. Like with five shots at it, five 50-50s, the odds are pretty good you're going to get something in the 170s. So it might be worth like rolling the dice at that point. Or it might not. I mean, it is possible to flip tails five times in a row. Yeah. So you have to decide how much risk you're willing to take. But wasting attempts when you're not ready and forcing an application when you're, when you're way late in the cycle, like you're, you're way, way going in the wrong direction here. So I hope you just withdraw from January and start over. All right. <clears throat> Alex says, hello, on Harder, identify the conclusion questions. Is there an implied conclusion that is not explicitly stated, parens, but made explicit as an answer choice? Also, is there a difference between terms evidence and premise on the LSAT? Okay, so two questions. Why don't you take both of them?
1: Okay, yeah. So on some, it doesn't have to be the harder ones, just on some conclusion questions, yes, the correct answer is actually a conclusion that the argument was structured to reach, I'll give an example actually reach. Yeah, go for it. Something real
0: simple. Okay, like uh, Mm -hmm. if it's a blizzard, um, you're not going outside. Like if it's a blizzard where you live, you're not going outside. Nathan lives somewhere where it's a blizzard outside right now.
1: Yep. Yeah. So those two facts, premises, evidence together strongly lead to this idea that Nathan is not going to go outside. But you never said that. So in this, the question would say something like, the passage or the argument is structured to lead to which one of the following conclusions? Yep. Now, I want to clarify something here, though, and that is that in a lot of conclusions, they just ask you, what is the main conclusion of the argument? And in that case, you don't want to be picking answers that are beyond what was said, You're just going to find the explicitly stated main conclusion and pick that, right? Some of the tempting wrong answers are where you might go next, but that's not what was explicitly stated in the argument as the main conclusion. And in that case, you need to pick that. Uh, So my my point here is that- Let me
0: say that another way too. Yeah. If they explicitly stated a main conclusion, then that's the answer. That's the answer. But they didn't, in my example, and they frequently- don't i mean i don't know how frequent it is but it's not infrequent it's it's a thing that happens on the lsat they'll give you fact 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 but if you think about it those three facts are obviously they're obviously there to reach a natural like proven conclusion and again my example was if it if you live somewhere where there's a blizzard outside you're not going outside nathan lives somewhere where there is a blizzard outside that's all i said that's it but the The conclusion of like, why did I waste your time with those two statements? Well, obviously, I was trying to get you to make the inference that I'm not going to go outside. That's the conclusion of my argument, even though I didn't explicitly state that conclusion. Let me give you another example. You can't be guilty of murder if you weren't there. Mr. Smith wasn't there. Now, if I'm actually in court, I'm going to go ahead and make sure that I say it 100,000 times He didn't do it. Yeah. But I don't have to say he didn't do it. If it's a fact that you can't commit murder if you're not there. And if it's a fact that you weren't there, then you didn't do the murder. And that is the conclusion of that statement, even though I never said the conclusion explicitly.
1: Yeah. The one thing I wanted to point out is that I don't know this for sure, but when I have paid attention to this, I believe that in all cases where the conclusion is not stated it's the next step, right? It's the thing that's the implied conclusion, as this correspondent says, as Alex says. Um, the question itself, the question that the LSAT asks you alludes to that, it says, hey, the, the passage is structured to lead to which one of the following conclusions or something like that. Yeah. As opposed to just asking what the main point is. And therefore, sometimes people say, Hey, wait a sec. This isn't a main point question. This is actually a supported question, which I'm totally fine with. The bottom line is that, yes, this does happen. uh, But I think you're also going to get a a hint from the.
0: But please don't make too much of that. I like they could change that at any time. I don't see any reason why they can't just say what was the conclusion of that argument. Like you're saying that they haven't done that. They have only said, you know, the. The statement was structured to support which one of the following conclusions or something like that. But I don't think they have to do that. That's not like set in stone. And I feel like they could just ask you a normal conclusion question and the correct answer could be an implied conclusion. Um, It'll always be an obvious implication of the facts. Like if you think about it, the facts are definitely going to prove one thing. And you should you honestly you should be able to predict it before you even look at the question if you're doing it right.
1: Yeah, I would say some of these harder conclusion questions, where the conclusion is not explicitly stated, often involve opinions of other people. And so, what will happen is the passage will tell you what other people think, and then immediately jump into the evidence as to why that opinion is wrong, without explicitly saying Mm -hmm. that that yeah, it'll just say like but yeah, but here's all my reasons why that's stupid, but. They never said that's stupid or they never said that's wrong. So the in conclusion is strongly implied We're get we get what you're trying to say. It just was never said explicitly. Also, uh, don't confuse like don't
0: don't don't get it backward. Right. Because they could say the argument as a whole was structured to support which one of the following conclusions. And the correct answer could be an explicitly stated conclusion absolutely right so just don't don't get tricky with it man like the you got to go back to really the fundamentals of logical reasoning which is just attack the damn argument if you attack the argument then you're going to come away from it knowing what the conclusion was and what i mean by attack the argument is if they're clearly making an argument you got to try to call bullshit if you can't tell whether they're making an argument if it looks like it's just fact 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 Well, then you have to combine those facts together and think about what they could conceivably prove, which sometimes is going to be the conclusion of their argument. I don't think that they are harder. Alex says, you know, on harder conclusion questions. Is this a thing that they do? I don't think it necessarily has to be harder. Uh, I can tell you what would make it harder, though. It would be a hell of a lot harder if you had read the question first. Because when you read the question first, if you take that dumbass Kaplan Princeton Review old dogmatic way of doing the LSAT, you read the question first and it says, you know, the argument as a whole is supported to is structured to support which one of the following conclusions. And you go, oh, main conclusion question. I'm just going to skim the passage looking for therefore or thus or so or hence (laughs) And then I'm just going to, but then when you do that, you, oh, I don't see any of those conclusion indicator words, huh? Oh, well, maybe there's premise indicator words. And then you start looking for since and because and for, oh, wait, there's none of those. There's no premise indicator words either. Oh, how am I, how could I ever find the conclusion of the argument now? And it's like, okay, if you would have not, you did it backward, like you made it hard for yourself. If you would have just read the statement, and then I say, hey, what's the point of all that? You probably would have put the pieces of the puzzle together and said the correct answer before you ever even knew that it was a conclusion question. Should we continue? Alex.
1: Yeah, Alex has this other question. Yeah, is there a difference
0: between evidence and premise on the LSAT? Go ahead.
1: No, they are the same thing. Okay. Premises, reasons, evidence. Justification; those are all things that the author is using to, try to justify them. Might matter
0: because I guess that you can provide evidence like that your opponent is
1: using, and then turn around and make a different argument. Sure, but I I would say all of that is is subsumed into this idea of the opinion of someone else, right? It's going to be qualified. It's going to be so and so claims or whatever, and so and uh, but at that point, it's not. It's not a premise of your argument, really. No, no. But it might be evidence or premise uh, for someone else, but it's going to be qualified. So I would no longer say that's a premise or evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, sure. Yeah. It's the premise or evidence of someone else's argument. But
0: yeah, it's not really your premise. It's evidence that is in the record, but it's like evidence that was that they stated that. I I don't know. Maybe we're getting too much in the weeds. Probably the answer is just no, Alex, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And in some ways it doesn't matter because whether, whether we're talking about the premise of someone else's argument or the evidence of someone else's argument, that's the same thing, right? They're still synonymous. Okay.
0: Anyways. Alex continues. Oh, I started listening to your podcast again. And I was wondering if you've ever discussed why the LSAT doesn't take into account accuracy as part of the score. As I have picked up on your philosophy of slow is smooth, smooth is fast and getting things right by understanding (laughs) shocker, getting things right by understanding. I wondered how differently students would approach the LSAT if the way they were scored took their accuracy into account. Parentheses, completing only 15, say, but getting them all right, versus completing 20, but getting five of them wrong. Um, I'm going to stop you right there, Alex, and I'm going to say the LSAT does do that. The LSAT does take accuracy into account. Because if you do 15 questions and get them all right, then you can guess on the remaining questions and get bonus points for the questions you didn't attempt. So there's really no difference between a test that says, don't answer questions you're not sure of. And a, que- and a test that says bubble in every answer. There's really no difference. Because whether they're penalizing you for a guess, if they penalize you for a guess, then you're just never going to guess. But if they say, oh, there's no penalty for guessing, well, then you're going to guess on the questions you don't attempt. So in your example, doing 20 questions but getting five wrong, well, on the LSAT, that's worse than doing 15 and getting them all right. Because if you do 15 and get them all right, you're going to guess on the five that you didn't do, five out of 20 that you're talking about. And you're going to get one out of five of those right on average. And so you'll end up with 16 points from only doing 15 questions. So the LSAT actually does take accuracy into account. If you look at it that
1: way. You get a 20% boost on every question you don't attempt. 20% bonus, 20% free. Mm
0: -hmm. And another way of looking at it is that it costs you one fifth of a point to attempt a question, right? Don't do questions unless you're going to get them right. Because if you don't do them at all, you're going to get a fifth of a point for free. Alex continues, a podcast episode by Malcolm Gladwell about the incongruity of what law schools expect you to do once you're in, which is slow the F down and what the LSAT seems to want you to do, speed the F up, got me thinking about this. Would love to hear Ben and Nate banter about this topic. (laughs) I don't know what episode it was, but we went through the whole Gladwell on the LSAT podcasts. I hate to break it to you, but Gladwell got it 100 percent wrong about the LSAT. Gladwell doesn't understand the LSAT. Gladwell made up his mind in advance, and then he went out and produced a garbage podcast episode in which he just stated everything 100 percent wrong. There's no they're not trying to get you to speed up. If they were trying to get you to speed up, then our method wouldn't work, but our method works better than any other method, which is slow down, understand what you're reading, get the questions right. If you don't finish all of them, you just guess. And Gladwell never even like he, he, he just assumed right. He just assumed that you have to do all 25 questions in a section, which is wrong. And he didn't ask us and he didn't ask anybody credible. He asked two old dudes who don't even do LSAT anymore because they were local to him in New York city, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> like Gladwell was forever ruined for me. When I listened to that podcast episode, we we've talked about this. Maybe somebody else, maybe a listener could chime in on uh, Gladwell. I've said this a million times, but domain experts hate Gladwell because you're an expert in the domain. And then Gladwell comes in and says a whole bunch of wrong shit about your domain. And you're like, what, <laughs> wait, what? And he's like famous. So he gets a whole bunch of everybody now gets all these wrong ideas from Gladwell. Well, you don't know that until Gladwell covers your domain. So I was like a big Gladwell fan. Yeah. Until he did. I was like, oh shit. Yeah. Gladwell's doing the LSAT. And then (laughs) it's like, just, he couldn't have gotten it more wrong. I mean, he got it wrong in every possible way. Yeah. It was weird. Very strange. You don't have time to actually comprehend the passages
1: on reading comprehension. Huh? That's funny. Okay. Well, what's the plan then? Did you talk to anybody who scored high and.
0: (laughs) Every single person who works for us (laughs) got all of them, right? Basically on reading comp. And they didn't do that by luck or by racing. They did that by reading it and understanding it. And when you read it and understand it, then the questions are easy. Anyway. You can't, sorry, but Gladwell is, he's, he's done for me. I I can't, how could I ever trust him? No, you know, being an expert in one area and then I see how terrible of a job he did. It's no. Yeah. All right.
1: You want to read this one from uh, Anonymous? Yeah. The subject is LSAC plus. Hey, Ben and Nathan. I just listened to episode 338 where you guys discuss the LSAC plus program I attended a program last summer at Alabama Law called Summer Scholars, previously called PLUS. There was an application process that involved disclosing your GPA and writing short essays. I was initially waitlisted before being admitted. Oh, so you have to apply. I kind of forgot about that. You do not have to be a URM but it is targeted toward those demographics. Overall, it was a great experience that was directed by law professors who seemed to seemed like they cared about the mission of the program. During the program, I was able to take my first LSAT diagnostic and had tutoring sessions with TestMasters. Oh, so TestMasters is involved in this program? There were more than 60 speakers over 4 weeks. Some were alumni and a few were lawyers with historical contributions. For example, UW Clemen, We took trips. Uh, Who is UW Clemen? It looks like you have a note here. Yeah, I looked it up. Um, He's
0: an Alabama attorney in private practice and a former United States district judge. He was among the first 10 African-American lawyers admitted to the Alabama bar. Did he go to Alabama law school? No, No, he did not. No, he went to Columbia (laughs) law school.
1: (laughs) But anyway, nice of him to go talk to uh, this program at Alabama law. Okay, We took trips to law firms, federal courthouses, and were able to meet federal judges and judicial clerks. We also took brief intros to different law areas. I will say that they did not discuss scholarships much, (laughs) and it seemed like they assumed that everyone would be taking on a decent amount of debt going into law school. That's how those conversations go, right? It's all about, okay, let's figure out how you're going to finance this, as opposed to let's figure out how you're going to get a scholarship. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we actually had two speakers from uh, Axis Lex speak about how to manage our mountain of debt by borrowing a few thousand dollars less each semester. Man, that's like rearranging chairs on the Titanic, right? You're already going down. Oh, let's go down a little slower. I did not get the feeling that they were trying to reel us in, but much of the info that they gave us was obviously pertaining was obviously pertained to Alabama law. Okay, so that's one person's experience.
0: Yeah, um, we've had Aaron Taylor of Access Lex on uh, the podcast before. You could just Google uh, Access Lex Thinking LSAT and you'll find those episodes. 257 for sure, we had Aaron Taylor on. We had, what was the other, we had another guy on too. Remember that guy? Yeah,
1: yeah, and he was talking about, How to save dollars well, that's uh, year in there.
0: And and Anonymous does bring that up. Yeah.
1: Like literally, not even like tens of dollars.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that's my impression too of of Access Likes. I remember them talking about they didn't literally talk about recycling cans, did they? I want to say that that was like in the slideshow that they had.
1: I kind of remember that. Yeah, I remember that discussion. And I remember our discussion with that other guy, and People wrote in afterwards and like, what was the takeaway from that? That you, you seemed <laughs> to be arguing with him about whether or not you should be taking on debt. And we didn't know who to listen to. And no, he didn't seem to because, disagree, actually.
0: Like once yeah. we started
1: talking to him about how
0: scary that amount of debt was and we talked. Oh, because remember, we were talking about like the
1: possibility of repaying your loans. Oh, yeah. He was like, you could get these things forgiven after 20 years as long as you stay up on them or something. Yeah. He was
0: essentially like going through (laughs) all the ways that you could possibly get yourself out of this mountain of debt. And yeah, a big part of their whole presentation was, well, you know, you can turn down some of your loans. And it's like, yeah, okay, great. So I'm going to eat top ramen for three years because I'm going to turn down, you know, a few thousand dollars worth of like, I could have actually bought produce for myself, but instead I'm just gonna, you know, <laughs> I wanna and it's like, yeah, that is totally deck chairs on the Titanic because a few thousand dollars while you're borrowing a few hundred thousand dollars, it's just like doesn't do anything. I mean, it's not even the interest that you will accrue uh in a couple months of <laughs> it's nothing. It's nothing. It's like it's totally stupid. And so it's like. I hate it because it's giving people the illusion that this is okay. You know, it's a bunch of like fancy yeah. suited up people talking to, you know, like they're sort of quasi governmental and they're like telling you that it's okay to do this. But yeah, <laughs> essentially it's just, uh, it's shilling for the law schools, you know, it's like an, a way of, of helping kids think it's okay to borrow this amount of money, which it's just not. Yeah. <laughs> Anonymous didn't get the feeling that they were trying to reel them in, but that is exactly what they were doing was trying to reel you in. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that that's what these programs are for and yeah. Hey, they're diversity oriented. That's fantastic. I'm not saying that's wrong, but you got to start giving these people scholarships. You can't just be rule, like bringing them in on diversity grounds and then charging them the maximum. Yeah. Um, while giving like more affluent, whiter kids scholarship money. Yep. Which is what happens at pretty much every law school. I guess yeah. not at Harvard, Sanford, Yale, right? They've started to go need only scholarships.
1: Yep. Not that these schools are <laughs> doing that intentionally, but that's the result of a system in which they reward high scores and high GPAs. Okay, Um, we have another one here
0: from Anonymous about conditional scholarships. One college I was looking at seems to require a 2.9 GPA to retain the scholarship. But when I look at their grading standards, they appear to curve 1L grades to a 2.9 median. 2.8. Sorry, 2.8 median. Also, in looking at their 509 report for 2022, 45 out of 112 students had their scholarships reduced or eliminated last year. Is the curving of the grades to be below the requirements to maintain the scholarship typical of schools that offer conditional scholarships? Also, would it be possible to get an icon asterisk on the scholarship estimator, which indicates that a law school gives or recently has given conditional scholarships to warn us Mm, that's a good suggestion i like that idea a lot yeah finally now that the new 509s are out has the underlying data in the estimator has the underlying data the estimator uses been updated to reflect the new numbers i know that that's a work in progress has that actually happened yet for 2022 I don't think it's
1: actually been deployed. Brittany is working on that and it will okay. be up soon.
0: Yeah, it involves getting some, like it involves a developer, right? Somebody has to write a script to go scrape all that and update it.
1: Yes, we to have get to all the PDFs in it. there. And then, yeah, we have to, yep. Yeah, but so we're there's close. some work we're we working have to through do. It. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, sure enough. Uh, by the way, I, I mean, kudos to Anonymous, whoever this is, because you're, you're a savvy consumer. And as you can tell from... Many of the emails we read on this show, the majority of law school applicants are completely naive uh, consumers. I mean, they have no idea what they're getting themselves into. And you're just, (laughs) hey, you're citing the 509s at us. So you understand exactly what you're talking about. At Chapman, which, by the way, is in Orange, California, and um, is a... Okay regional law school, right? Mediocre law school. Way better though than those schools we were talking about e- earlier in the show, at least as indicated by their 509. I mean, this 509 is 161 median LSAT, 3.63 median GPA. What Ave Maria was like 10 points lower on LSAT and a full point lower on GPA or something like that. I mean, just like yeah. garbage. Yeah. So this school is um they, at least on those numbers, they look a little bit more credible and yeah, they are absolutely doing it. Oh yeah. And those are one L numbers. And then, okay. One L tuition, $59,500 grants and scholarships, 31% half to full 13% more than full. And then you go down, it's buried at the, well, it's on the, sorry, it's on that same page. Yeah. And they've been doing it every year. So there's no doubt that Chapman is doing this on purpose. I mean, they, mm-hmm. in, in 19, 2020, they admitted 120 with conditional scholarships and then reduced or eliminated 49 of those almost half in 2020, 2021, they re- entered 112 conditional scholarships reduced or eliminated 47 21 22, 112 conditional scholarships reduced or eliminated 45. So yeah, they are pretty consistently reducing or eliminating 40%, 35%, 40, 40% of these conditional scholarships. And I don't know if they curve their grades so that they can take away scholarships or if they set the scholarship requirement below the uh, or sorry, above the median of the grade curve so that they can eliminate scholarships. But yeah, those two things working together. I mean, it's it's a systematic elimination of these conditional scholarships. And they'll tell you you know, they're, they're going to tell you when they um, when they give you the scholarship offer, they're going to tell you whether it can be reduced or eliminated. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with applying to schools like this. Just make sure you know what you're signing up for when you sign. My strategy for dealing with this is, you just withdraw. If if you if they cancel your scholarship, then you cancel them and you just withdraw from law school. Like yeah. if you go to Chapman and you can't get grades above the median, you're very
1: you're, you're really not that likely to be a successful lawyer anyway. Because you if you were admitted on the basis of a full ride scholarship, that means you were near the top of the class, and yet you're not succeeding at maintaining anywhere close to that sort of GPA. So maybe that's a good sign that well, and if you don't get good grades
0: at Chapman, God, I mean, like what law firm is going to be interested in you if you're at a bad school with bad grades.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, um, I think it's a totally reasonable strategy. Go to Chapman. If you keep your scholarship, you keep your scholarship. And if you don't keep your scholarship, you just go, okay, I failed. Like I failed fast. And I didn't pay anything. Right. Because I they're not going to cancel it during the first year. They're going to cancel it at the end of the first year. So like what you didn't really lose much. You just wasted a year. You found out that you're not good at law school slash don't like law school. You just drop out. Yep. And if you're not willing to do that, then I don't think you should go to that school in the first place on one of these conditional scholarships.
1: You should be careful, though, because we don't want to run into the same trap that we were talking about earlier in the show, right? Where you're setting yourself up to be tempted to now, oh, I'm going to do my second year and pay, right? So conditional scholarships definitely need to take, require a second look. Yeah, if Chapman is the best scholarship you can get,
0: like you couldn't get any unconditional full rides, then yeah, you need to need to think about whether this is something you really want to do, because maybe yeah. it's not that great.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry. I was just thinking about this a little bit more. We actually know the number of students that saw reduced or eliminated, right? So yeah. you can, in some ways, you can put a, a a value on that. So for example, if the estimated scholarship is 50 grand, right, but a third of students lose it, isn't it going to be marked down? 40% of, of students lose it, actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, 45 out of 112 is 40.1, 40.2%. So say 40% lose it. So yeah, an economist would absolutely discount that scholarship by 40%. The economist yeah. would say, no, actually, if you're going to stick it out for all three years, then actually, yeah, your scholarship is only worth what they said it was worth times 60%. -hmm. The problem is with that analysis that you have the option to quit. So as long as you have the option to quit, then I think an economist is going to have to put a value on that option to quit, right? If you go into it with the right strategy of, well, I'll just drop out, then there's not really discounting there.
1: But it's still, it's still, uh, it it reflects the fact that you're not getting the full thing, right? Well, you're and actually so going to get
0: nothing. True, you're actually going to get nothing. Yeah. Because because like the scholarship for your first year is worth zero if you don't graduate. If you don't finish. True, yeah. So I guess it is a straight 40%. I well, think that's the, right. I,
1: whatever you decide to do, the discount at least <laughs> gives it more feeling than simply an asterisk, right? It's like, well, here's what the discounted... Here's what the likely value is here. It says it's a full ride, but maybe it's actually only half. I,
0: for simplicity, for the estimator purposes, I think I like the asterisk idea. Like it could just be an asterisk that links to a little explainer.
1: Because it it is, we're estimating full, but it's almost like the asterisks should include, hey, this warning and (laughs) this discounted value. Like, think about this. It's probably more like this. Where do you think we should draw the line? Because if a
0: school, you know, if it's like 10% reduced or eliminated, not that big of a deal, but it's I guess we just risk. still put the asterisk. You just discount it okay. less. So if right? they do yeah. any conditional, yeah, if they reduce or eliminate any scholarships, we give them the asterisk and then a little explainer at the bottom or something.
1: Explainer or with pop the up explainer. Yeah, exactly. A hover, rollover. hover yep. explainer. Okay.
0: Yeah. I love that. Cool. Um, That's it for content for today. Come to our free classes, though. Uh, Saturday, January 7th, we're doing a full length proctored practice test with an experimental section. You should definitely sign up for that for free. Wednesday, January 11th, Lily is doing another version of her pre-test pump up. If you're taking the January LSAT or if you just want to come talk to a bunch of people who are taking the January LSAT, plus Lily, plus a whole bunch of our other teachers always do cameos at that event. Um, should be really great if you want to get some last minute motivation for the test. That's Wednesday, January 11th. Um, I'm doing a free class oh, on last minute LSAT tips on Thursday, January 12th. So if you are scheduled to take this January LSAT, we got a bunch of last minute stuff for you to come to. That's it. Be LSAT famous, ask us questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. Please do check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. It's five days a week, all kinds of good stuff over there. That was episode 383 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.